public scripture reading so that at least we get some of it. Because often we don't get enough of it, we don't take the time to read it throughout the week. But this morning we're going to look at um, the emphasis in verse 22 and as we go through in chapter 15, um, verse 22 and reading through, I think it's 32 he read through, is that we're going to thematically look at addressing the concerns of new believers. Addressing the concerns of new believers. And in that, what, if you remember last week, what took place was the claim to be a Christian, you need to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law. And there was an imp this was an important and serious issue that needed to be addressed immediately because it was affecting those Gentile believers up at the church at Antioch, and it would have affected all those churches where Paul had spoken to and addressed in his first missionary journey. It had serious ramification and consequences. And so it was important as we look at that. And first of all, we need to look at, if you're following along in your notes, is that there was a correction that needed to take place. If you look at verse 24, correction because incorrect doctrine needs to be addressed. And there's a lot of it in today's society. But here, with new believers, it was even more important because they didn't know what was true. They, they're saying, hey, um, is this right? And what takes place? And so they send down Paul and Barnabas. They're at the church in Jerusalem, in Judea. And so verse 24, it states and says, Since we have, we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with their words. And uh, different versions say uh, different things. I know that that is the New King James. And in verse 24, it says that some went with our authorization, went out from us and troubled you with their Words unsettling your hearts or uh, it's affecting the souls. And there's this correction because something occurred where this Pharisees and others who agreed said that, hey, you need to be circumcised and you need to follow the law of Moses in order to be really truly saved. And this person claimed to be from the Jerusalem church and represent their, their position of salvation. So we have two issues here because, first of all, unsettled their souls and hearts, this was a serious issue. And that was an error, and while the individual acted alone, even if they believed they represented a larger group um, from that church, it was still incorrect. And it was a misrepresentation to the Gentiles in Antioch and needed corrected, because first of all, the claim was based upon the authority of the apostles and the church at Jerusalem. Because here, this individual, the doc, there was a doctrinal error about what is salvation, but also the misrepresented, uh, misplaced spiritual authority, saying this church and everyone back here believes this, and you should, you should too. And it needed to be rectified, corrected. If you think about it, um, I was trying to study and think about what would be something where you're misrepresented or something that isn't true. Any of you ever face identity? You've heard of identity theft, but anyone ever have to go through identity theft? Identity theft is very hard to correct because of someone who takes your identity and tries to represent themselves. But let me just give you this example. And just listen to this story of identity theft. It all began when Andori Sachs, a mother of four who was attending school for a biomedical engineering degree, received a call from Salt Lake City Division of Child and Family Services. It seemed that someone answering Sack's name and description had given birth to a premature baby girl who subsequently tested positive for methamphetamine. 
The mother had abruptly fled from the hospital, leaving the infant and a $10,000 bill behind. And the Department of Child and Family Services wanted some answers. Of course, Sachs was not the mother of the child. The baby girl belonged to a woman named Dorothy Bell Moran, who had stolen Sachs' driver's license from her car two months before. DCFS, or Department of Child Family Services, however, was preparing to submit paperwork to declare Sachs an unfit mother and put her four kids that she had into state custody. Sachs' seven-year-old daughter was also pulled out of school by DCSF agents and subjected to questioning. Eventually, the issue was cleared up, but Sachs' problem persisted. Her medical records had been changed to include Moran's health profile, including her blood type and other information. Sachs can even view her own medical records to ensure the information has been changed back because the hospitals involved won't let her, ironically, because it would compromise the identity thief's own rights to medical privacy. It's especially scary, said Sachs, in an interview because I have a blood clotting disorder and if a doctor gave me the wrong blood type, it could be fatal. Talk about misrepresentation. So understanding the consequences of what can occur. And as we look at what takes place in understanding it with younger and others who are not spiritually mature, who don't understand, there are grave consequences. So this correction had to be done. But also, as we see next, what takes place is that there was a council convened and a council CU council as far as those who were a group um, coming together of believers, mature believers. And it's important to discuss this issue with other mature believers and deliberate what is the best approach. Because here, the church leaders and apostles discuss this important issue. And here they get together, as we see, it was the apostles. It was the church at um, Jerusalem, the leaders, James. And even if you look back, um, Peter was there. And there are times that require discussion by a group of people. Everyone must discuss, share, and learn from the exchange. And it cannot be purely emotional, because oftentimes people say, oh, I feel this motivated by feelings or selfish motives, but discuss with the goal of understanding the main issue. Because what was the main issue here was the consequences of believing wrong salvationally, but also the misrepresentation of saying, hey, that church believes this. And so sometimes when you come together as a group, there's disagreement, but there must be a unity of like-minded believers, even when uniformity is not achieved. You know, there's sometimes we're going to disagree on different issues, different people. You know, oh, I don't like this and that. But oftentimes, unless it's a doctrinal issue, you know, we must understand what is doctrinal, what is preferential, what is most important. And as we look at that, there is a submission one to another as we move together forward. And just like this is a congregational-led church, there's things that, you know, hey, we don't believe they should do this. You know, if I said all of a sudden, you know, we need to build a 400, 500 C auditorium, you know, wait a second, Pastor, you know, there's not agreement in that. And just so you know, that's not the goal here. The goal is to be an effective ministry in the community here, not to just build a church. And then sometimes what happens to churches, they build a almost a business and then move on. But the desire here is to have an effect in the community around us, to have an effect on each believer that attends here to help us grow in Christ. 
But this council that came together and understanding unity does not equal 100% agreement. You know, think about your own household. Half the time, you know, we, we don't agree with our family members, our friends, our husband, wife, our kids. Half the time, we don't even know what we believe. You know, I, you know, you can argue with yourself. Should I buy this? No, I shouldn't buy this. But wait a second, you know, if I buy that, then, you know, I won't have this. And, you know, that's why I don't grocery shop. You know, I, I have enough trouble by well, grocery shop, but I have struggle. You know, this has more carbs or this, you know. If it's something else, I can do that. But, you know, I'm not a very good grocery shopper. I guess it's a benefit. But the point is, is that we argue, we discuss, we deliberate. Oh, what do I believe? Is this right or not? But coming in and having this council of believers, which is a, a group of believers who can provide some spiritual wisdom and guidance, and they're organized, and implies a submissiveness to the accepted plan by the group and can be exhibited by the pastor, by deacons, by the congregation, each one. And that is important that, you know, that each of us understand. And so that's the council. And they exhibited that. If you look at verse 22, and 25, as, as they are expressing it, please the apostles and the elders and the whole church to send the chosen men. So they agreed upon it together. It wasn't just like, oh, we're going to do this. And that's an important to understand that it was a group decision, and that council helped in that. They formed that council of apostles who were not always part of the church, if, as we look at it. But also, not only... In addressing concerns for new believers, it's that counsel there sometimes you need. It's also wise to get counsel with an S. And so as we look at counsel, insight must come from the Holy Spirit and not selfish motivations. We can't trust ourselves. We're sinful people. And so we need, first of all, discernment of the Holy Spirit and to recognize that other believers have the Holy Spirit as well, but also sometimes wisdom and guidance from others. So here as we see... Men and women must never make decisions with grave consequences without counsel. Here the leaders exhibit dependence upon the Holy Spirit in prayer. And as we read through, if you go back to chapter 15, verse 8, it says, So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, referring to the Gentile believers, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. A person comes to Christ alone through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's not through any other actions or works. And here, the counsel, to get that wisdom from the Holy Spirit, recognizing what he does. And then verse 28. If you look at 28, and I'll read it from the Holman Christian, it says, For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours. They're saying, we agree with the Holy Spirit here. Well, that's a good thing. You know, you don't want to go contrary to the Holy Spirit, but his, they didn't have his revealed word. The benefit we have presently is we can read the word and the process of what was taking place and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ is God's revelation to mankind. Each believer possesses the Holy Spirit upon salvation and churches and leaders conform, confirm rather our obedience to God and in this, this letter in the scripture. And we exhibit they exhibit wisdom in the decision, and it's wise to search the scripture, the authority of the word of God, and getting that counsel. So prayer is such a vital part of our Christian lives, but also understanding is with younger believers, younger believers helping them. Think about you as a child, as a teenager, 
Your ideas aren't necessarily the same ideas that you have now if you're, a mature, if you're an adult or as a mature adult about certain things. Maybe parenting. Maybe what you believe about uh, just in general. You know, sometimes your thoughts and your ideas change about um, as you mature and understand a little more about the situation. Um, next thing we see here is clarification. And so verse 28 and 29, clarification. And I want to clarify what was being addressed because these new believers wanted to know what is the truth. Is this truth or is it not? Do you believe this? And so verse 28 and 29, it states and says, For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours to put no greater burden on you than these necessary things, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep these, yourselves from these things. See, the concerns are, must be addressed in a way the believer can understand. See, new believers don't understand the biblical verbiage or immediately identify the truth of salvation and the record of Scripture. A person that comes to Christ doesn't automatically understand everything the Bible has to say from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Probably each one in this room, you know, if I were to say, okay, let's go to uh, Malachi, let's go to the Minor Prophets. And it's like, okay, first of all, where is that in the Bible? Because rarely is there preaching out of there. But to understand that, you need a, a background of the Jewish history. And uh, honestly, if we look at the Jewish Hebrew history, it's not our history. So it's not as interesting to us. You know, you don't stay up at night wondering, oh, you know what? I just can't wait to read through the, the book of Numbers. You know, oh, that's just an excitement to me, you know, thrill. But if your family record was mentioned in there or if you could trace your lineage, you know, it's, it's different. It's your family. But, you know, like, oh, you know, that's just a thrill a minute, exciting to me. You get through that. It's like, but it's the inspired word of God. And it's important. It's valuable to us to understand the lineage of Christ and even sequentially, chronologically, that the word of God is true. So as we come through and look at new believers, the essence, first of all, of salvation is that it's grace alone. And grace alone through faith alone. And through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, while salvation may be free to us, there was still a cost. And that's where people say, oh, well, it's easy to believe. You just believe and then you'll be saved. Well, then they don't understand because there is the repentance part of it. There is the the transfer of trust and understanding that what Jesus Christ did, the object of our faith, is worthy of our trust. Jesus Christ is trustworthy. And we serve him out of, not out of a, we have to, out of a compelling love because of what he's done for us. And here teaching them that as we look at salvation is free, but sin demanded a sacrifice to remove the consequences of wrath and judgment. Wait a second, wrath and judgment? We don't preach that in the church. But there's nothing that needs to be added to the gospel. And here there was adding, okay, what about the traditions and preferences? They aren't added to elevate to, to doctrine. It's not doctrinal, biblical truth. It's not salvation if you, if you dress a certain way, if you do things a certain way, methodology. I mean, many of us would probably not fit well into a cultural first century church. You know, if they play the tambourine, if they, if they do dress a certain way, why are they all in these flowing clothes? You know, why are the uh, men, if you've ever seen a Hebrew, some of the worshipers, they kind of jump up and down a little bit. We'd be like, what's going on, you know? 
only time we're jumping up and down if we got ants in our pants or, or you know, to shake out the mosquitoes, bugs. But to understand culturally differences. And so here, they're saying, guess what? Circumcision, wait a second, what, what about that? Or following the law of Moses, hand washing. Hey, that's relevant to us. We need to have hand washing. Guess what? That was a preference and it was given to the Jewish Hebrew nation for purposes. But to also teach them, guess what? You aren't under those um, conditions and they aren't part of salvation. And that's the danger is that we have nowadays. As Christians, we're trying to figure out what is right. How do we honor God the most? But here, whether it be suits, hymns, service styles, Bible version, and other external measures, they must never be used as tests for fellowship or to determine one's level of spirituality. We would do well to encourage and help one another to know the word of God better and by praying for spiritual growth. And even to pray for the receptivity of the gospel to others. In the first century, Romans thought the Christians were weird. Can you imagine that? First of all, they thought they were, they were cannibals. This morning, we're going to take um, communion, the Lord's Supper. There's some who believe that it transfers into the body of Christ, and we don't necessarily believe that. We don't believe it's mystical. It is a communion. It is a representative, representative of the body and blood of Christ. It's do this in um, remembrance of me. I was going to say memorial. It's the same thing. But it's a reminder of that there was a cost, a sacrifice. And as a body of believers, we do it together as a communion, as a group of believers together. We get to partake in an action that glorifies and honors God. It's part of worship, but it's also a part of obedience through this and then also baptism. Those are the two ordinances given to the local church. And so clarification is that these are important. So those Romans in the first century thought, oh, you Christians, you're cannibals. You're eating one. You're eating the body and blood of Christ. That's gross. If you were to tell someone, oh, I went to church and, um, and ate, um, you know, the, uh, the cracker and, the and, and they say, oh, are you eating the body and blood of Christ? They didn't understand that. No, we're not. And here, it's also important that they said, oh, you know, those first century Christians are incestuous, if you know what that means. Because they said, oh, you know what? They go around and call each other brother and sister, and they have one father. So what's the deal? Well, no, sometimes you use that verbiage or vocabulary, brother and sister so-and-so, if you use it or not. But the whole point is they say, oh, they must all be one part of one big family. Well, that's not necessarily true. That is ignorance. But to understand that clarification for these new Christians, this is what the Word of God says, and we're not going to place upon you any other great burden because there are no great burdens. But then you might be asking, why are you putting this quote-unquote burden of what you, how you should live? Well, we'll get to that in just a minute. But continuing on, verse 25 through 27, there is a connection. And so the connection, uh, um, excuse me, 28, 29, I think I might have. Looking at that, the relationship must be established and not based upon a superior, inferior position. The Jews in Judea did not say to the Gentiles, oh, because we're super Christians, we're more mature than you, you should do this. No, he says that this is, would be wise to you. We give the recommendation, but we are all one in Christ. And Paul and Barnabas, even Peter, recognized the evidence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Gentiles as we look back in verse 8. But as we look through and see here, and verse 25, it says, It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you, our beloved Barnabas and Paul, 
Remember, those, they were sent out from the church at Antioch to do mission work. But originally, they were sent out from the church in Jerusalem to say, go up to Antioch and help these believers. So there's a connection there. They recognized the Holy Spirit in the life of the Gentiles, but it was also authentication to the Jews that indeed God had sent the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles as well. And even Peter confirmed that. If you remember, we went through that. And so this was the initial, or initial, or um, if I can use these terms, organically grafting of Jewish and Gentile believers together into one new organism known as the church. And if you want to look at that, it's emphasized in, in Ephesians 2, verse 13 through 19, breaking down the wall of partition, and now all of a sudden there's one, something new. Because for a Jewish, remember a Jew, it was hard enough for a Jewish individual to come to Jesus Christ because of, wait a second, the law, it's important, it's part of my culture, part of who I am, identity. And now you want me just to come as a salvation through the person work of Jesus Christ. So fine, they moved to that line. But now all of a sudden they say, wait a second, there's Gentiles who can come and be in the body of Christ. They're accepted by, by God and they don't have to keep the law. They don't have to become Jewish. They don't have to get certain. Well, that's way too much for me. So as we look at it, the Gentiles believers are dealing with issues of how to live like Christ, especially in a fallen, lost world, which was worse than even society as we know it. But then the Jewish believers, they were having trouble. How do we, you know, their minds were spinning. How do we connect and participate in fellowship with these other Gentile believers by still keeping the law, which is part of us? I can't do that. And so we see this, this new um, organism, Jewish and Gentile believers now connected as part of a spiritual family, sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. But it helps a little bit because as we go through, we're going to see that they develop a covenant. And so as we look at next, there is a covenant. A covenant in verse 28 29 is this new believers need a tangible plan of action how to live godly. That's where discipleship is such an important part of our, um, our spiritual growth. When a person comes to Christ, we don't just leave them. There has to be discipleship and understanding, okay, how do we, how do we live and worship together to help them through the process, to grasp those spiritual truths. As a church, as you come, and when a person comes to Christ, is baptized by immersion afterwards, and then becomes part of this local church, there is a covenant that we have together. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it this morning, but it says that we covenant together and it gives a plan of how to live and how to participate with one another. And here, verse 28 and 29 that we read, this new believers need a tangible plan, but a covenant is an agreement for fellowship and relationship. That's why your, your church relationships are sometimes closer than your family relationships. When you become a member at Grace uh, you're part of an assembly of believers, and we commit to pray for one another and to serve Christ alongside one another. However, it doesn't always mean that we behave Christian-like. Sometimes we mess up, and we need to um, admit that we're wrong, forgive, and live in such a way that represents, hey, guess what? We're still in a process of moving toward Christ-likeness. But as we look at it, this, that's our goal to live more like Christ. And the covenant or agreement promise permitted a tangible plan for Jews and Gentiles to eat together in fellowship. And as I was doing some background, understanding in different cultures, food 
and eating has a significance that is different. And even, I would say, historically in the past, growing up, some of you, as you grew up, as you grew up, um, there, having people over to your house was a much bigger deal than it is now. And nowadays you just go out to eat, but you know, it'd be like, oh, someone's coming over for dinner because there's fancy china coming out. And oh, we never use that table. You know, you hear all those stories about, you know, um, of people coming and the preparation. It was a, a much bigger deal. Internationally, it's different. And so as we look at, I was reading this article, and it was from um, England. And in this paper, just as I read it, outlines a sociological approach to studying cultural aspects of eating, illustrating various facets with reference to three pieces. Um, and the author references three different unpublished works. But the approach starts by appreciating that people's food choice is neither random or haphazard, but exhibits patterns and regularities. Imagine that. Each of you like patterns and regularities in how you eat. Maybe it's a certain time of day. Maybe it's what you eat. Um, but they, sociologi sociologists are compelled to realize that eating habits are not solely a matter of the satisfaction of physiological and psychological needs. So it doesn't mean that it's just because of biology you eat um, at certain times. And it's not always just because of psychologically you like this food, but nor merely a result of individual preference. But food has also been seen as a cultural affair. People eat in a socially organized fashion. There are definite ideas about good and bad table manners. And I, I bet you would agree with that. Like at my household, you know what? Kids, at least when you're at the dinner table, you don't need to sit on your knees. Or some of the friends come over and it's like they're playing catcher. You know, they'll get down like this at the table eating pizza and they're like this, you know, eating. I'm like, there's a chair, sit on it. What are you guys doing? You know, but that's just how some young people are. But my kids, I said, okay, at least sit when we eat dinner and we try to eat meals together dinner, you need to sit right. When you're at friend's house or out in public, I don't really care as much as long as you don't eat off the floor. But, you know, it's just different. And to understand that we have ideas and concepts of how people should eat, and there are definite ideas about the table manners, right and wrong, even how to present dishes. Okay, let me ask you this. When you're at Thanksgiving dinner, which way do you pass the food? Okay, and what about if you're left-handed, you know, sitting, where do you put the left-handed person sitting, you know, all these things, you cast it clockwise or right, or what, what if, uh, you know, you're not sitting, what if you're sitting in two tables, does it go figure eight? <laughs> but my point is that understanding is that there's certain ways that we have in cultures, and it depends on internationally as well. Foods themselves have been seen to convey a range of cultural meanings, and sometimes it's occasion, social status, ethnicity, and wealth. How many of you have, been, you have eaten food in another country? Okay? If you've eaten in another country, guess what? There are different social norms, social practices. And while you might not like them, or, you know, there's certain foods. Some of you ever eat some strange foods? You know, here we have a little bit of a scorpion on a dish and some uh, worms and octopus. You know, who doesn't love octopus? I like octopus. But some of you would be like, wait a second, look at those suction cup things. I can't get them down. They, they're going to stick to my throat. But my point in all of this is that as we look at this and understand this, this is what's going on between the Jewish believers and the Gentiles. There were certain rites and rituals and traditions that, at the Jewish table that they had to keep. And they're like, how do I keep this? But also fellowship with Gentiles who they didn't wash their hands. Uh, they can eat these other foods. And so this is wise. And what they do is they share, if you go back to verse 20, it says, 
Here, abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality, which was an important part. And so as we look at this, going back to the covenant and that they, that they give, it was for to help the Jewish and Gentiles at the table. First of all, to eat meals together. Unclean. What is unclean? What isn't unclean? So don't have strangled uh, animals. No blood. It was forbidden by the Old Testament law. And so that was a submission by the Gentiles not to serve that. You could say, well, I'm going to serve you these blood cubes, and I'm going to serve you this food anyway. But that was part of the covenant agreeing together. And it was important for the Jews and Gentiles that table fellowship was a mutually submissive act. And on behalf of both parties, in which they both benefited. And it honored the name of Jesus Christ. I've talked with different people and, you know, about eating foods. If you've ever gone to a different country and had to eat, had to eat strange foods. I've been there, um, different things. But you do it for the, out of love. Some, you know, you can say, well, health issues, I can't eat that. But oftentimes, you understand. You know, I'm thankful. My, my in-laws, when we were in Peru, you know, they ate guinea pig, you know. And if you've ever seen guinea pig, it's like a little rodent, you know. And, but it's, it's an act of love, sharing that. Some of you, you probably have eaten. I've heard of stories of an individual who was eating a family's house, and there's pet hair all over. And, you know, I mean, that would be hard to get through. It's like, you know, excuse me, I have a cough and hairball afterwards. But, but it's an act of love that, you know, understand and demonstrate. And it, and it was a mutually beneficial because it affected them and shared the love of Christ. Gentiles and unbelievers, it was their relationship too because now these new Gentile believers had to learn how to live with unbelievers. Maybe they had friends. Maybe they had family. What do I do? Should I partake in them with them now? How do, how do I live? And so for them, it says, guess what? This is an issue of conscience. Don't eat this meat offered to idols because being there is going to be represents, you know, it's going to maybe affect you. It could, you could fall back into sin, but there's some who won't listen. Um, I, when I, growing up, there was a Marine and he wanted to completely, for his own conscience, he removed everything that reminded him of where he lived when he came to Christ, and so he'd only listen to classical music. And that was just his prerogative, and so he decided to remove everything. But this was a mutually beneficial for them to just simply, okay, don't get the meat offered to idols, and also no sexual immorality, or the term in Greek is the where we get the word fornication. It can include incest, rape, prostitution, or just idol worship. All these different things, and it's, it's comprehensive. We don't see that comprehensiveness. But it's basically, as we look at it, in Leviticus 18, 6 or 18, prohibition that sex outside of marriage is sin and representative of the unsaved. It's also self-control to understand that what is right it's not permissive, but to live godly, to separate yourself from those things. And that'll be a greater testimony because maybe they went to the temple where they had the temple process. And now, oh, guess what? You need to separate yourself from that. So as we look at that. Next thing. So the covenant was mutually beneficial, but it helps believers. And it's not saying, okay, now you need to dress like a suit and understand when you come to church. You need to act a certain way. But it's helping them, first of all, read the word of God. And new believers are going to behave like the person who is discipling them or mentoring them. But to teach them to, even as a parent or as a spiritual mature person, this is what I believe, understanding. It's not a doctrinal issue. To teach them the difference between doctrine and preference. You know, we don't wear suits oftentimes here. Some do, you know, it doesn't matter. I wear suits and ties sometimes, but because of the heat, 
because, you know, neck, we get older, it ties. Sometimes I'll wear it just to throw people off. But, but it's not a doctrinal issue, and I don't want it to become a preferential issue for people. Let's focus on the spiritual issues, what the Word of God says. Because when we, when we change from the inside out, it's the Holy Spirit working in our lives. It's not mankind's attempt to become more godly. So celebration. And that, the other thing we look at here is celebration. And that is a wonderful thing because as we look at, sorry, I get through here, celebration, verse 25 through 27, but also 30 through 32. Believers must enjoy the instruction and blessings from God. So you have these leaders who share with the church of Antioch and say, guess what? This is what you are to do, and let's celebrate because we can worship together. And so they send Judas, Silas, and Paul and Barnabas with the news. They give instruction and blessing, and their response, it says, was a source of joy. If you look at verse 30 and 32, it says, Being sent off, they went down to Antioch, and after gathering the assembly, and just a note here, biblically, it says, went down to Antioch. Remember, if you look at a map, and I don't have it with um, in this set of PowerPoint, that um, Antioch is located north of Jerusalem. But this is not, oh, the Bible's wrong. It's elevation. Remember, Jerusalem was much higher. And so they went down to Antioch, which is north of, of Jerusalem. And they gathered the assembly. They delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of the encouragement. Rejoice. They were happy, but they, they came together. And it says later that Paul was there, and they spent time. And Judas and Silas, who were with the prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and strengthened them with a long message. They spent time together, and it provided a tangible means by which they could fellowship together. Praise and testimonies through spoken words, shared fellowship together. And you know, one good thing about believers in Christ, there's always food involved, right? The fellowship. But I believe that, that occurred too, but they encouraged one another. And so as we look through here, it is important for us to understand two different ethnic and cultural groups are brought together in Jews and Gentiles through the work of Jesus Christ. And it's because of Jesus Christ. And no matter your background, no matter your position, we can come together when two, two individuals come because of Jesus Christ, become a child of God through the repentance of sin and personal faith in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Even as we look at this this morning, maybe people of different ethnic backgrounds of different places. You know, you have Honduras, Germany. You have Asia, China, Korea. You have Many different countries represented, but even backgrounds from where you're from. And to know that in Christ, we have a common bond and identity because when we, of the repentance of sin and the personal faith in Jesus Christ. And that spiritual bond is greater than the diversity that each of us possess. And when we trust God to change us from the inside out, we can celebrate the results. It is a visible and powerful testimony to the unbelieving world around us. So while people may think differently, it is that unified that we can have through the work of Jesus Christ. And when we share that with new believers, so guess what? The bond in Christ, start there, read the word of God. Guess what? You're not going to have all the answers at once. But it's important that we understand that Christian fellowship, and that's where it needs to begin, within the churches. But obviously, it has to begin with what is salvation? 
Salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not salvation is faith and, and being baptized. Baptism is an act of obedience. It's not faith and good works that will lead you to Christ. It begins with understanding a repentance and then a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because we serve him out of love. And as we read the word of God, it helps us how to live, how to trust him, how to deal with people who believe differently from us. And then the fact that we can come and worship together. And that is an important part as we look at, just in closing, addressing the concerns of new believers. Because really, it's a concern for all believers. Worshiping together. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would help each one of us. I pray that you would help us to understand that in fellowship, whether sometimes there are believers who believe differently from us, how do we respond? How do we live? Well, first of all, it must understand that are they a believer in Jesus Christ? And then as we come together as a, an agreement, there are certain agreed upon covenant that we covenant together to participate. But Lord, it begins with having the same spirit of God residing inside of us. Lord, this message has been about young believers, how the Jewish group have believers can address and encourage and fellowship with un new believers in the, who are Gentiles. And Lord, just in a few moments, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper, an act of communion, a, a getting together. I'm going to ask the men if they'll come forward, the deacons, if they would sit on the front row at this time. But I'm going to ask everyone else as we think about it, how do we dwell in unity one with another? Well, first, the Bible says that we need to evaluate our hearts. Do we have something wrong against another believer? Have we been, have we, do we have some hidden sin? If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, place your faith and trust in Him. If you've been baptized and are a member of a, of a like precious church, I would encourage you to participate in the communion, the bread representing His body, the cup representing His blood. But otherwise, just allow it to pass. But the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians, um, and it's important for us to understand that evaluating our hearts to measure, we aren't to take it unworthily, but we are to take it as an act of communion. It says, let a man examine, let a man or woman examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats, the drink, eats or drinks in an unworthy manner drinks judgment. So Lord, I just pray that you would help each one of us. And I'm just going to, allow a moment, a time of silence where let's just evaluate our hearts. Are we in a right relationship? Do we know Jesus Christ as a personal, in a personal way? Evaluate. Just, so just take a moment and just allow the Spirit of God to, to deal with your heart. How, how am I as far as my, my relationships with others? Amen. Just going to try to switch to a different mic here. And um, 
As we look at this morning, if you haven't participated with this, uh, what we'll do is I'm going to ask uh, individuals if uh, we'll pass out all the elements. Um, they don't grant you any special favor or special blessing, but it is a blessing to partake together and to worship and as an act of obedience. But we just ask that you would wait till all would be served and then we'll partake together. So just uh, going to ask um, Walter Bush if uh, you would ask the Lord's blessing on the bread. Our good and gracious God, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ came, took upon himself a human body, died on the cross, and resurrected the third day, as we remember what he did for us. We're thankful and appreciate and partake of this bread in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. Amen. God says that no bones were broken. To think about him being flogged, 
ripping flesh, being taken, torn from his back, uh, beat and physically hit, spit upon. The only thing I can liken it to is if you've seen that movie, think of someone loved one who has just taken a brutal punishment and beating right before your eyes. How that would move you. How you would feel just a, a cathartic response of just of anguish and, and suffering of someone who you love is being brutally beat, suffering on your behalf. And it says in his word, and now took the bread and said, do this in remembrance of me. So we partake together. It also says in the word that they distributed the cup. And uh, just in a moment, we're going to have uh, Sean Settle, who's like a deacon as well, just ask the Lord's blessing on that cup. Father, we come to you and we thank you for the blood shed for us. You made it clear that without blood, there is no remission of sin, and specifically your blood. Thank you for being willing to die for us while we were yet sinners and strained your precious blood for us. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.
appreciate those words as you think about it. Proclaim that he will come again. Do this in remembrance of me. But he also said that he will come again. And that is the reminder as we participate. And so as we think about what the word of God says, he said, take this cup, which is new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we partake together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the privilege we have to worship you in obedience, to partake together, communion, and the fellowship, the bond that's um, in Christ. If there be someone here this morning who does not know you as a personal Savior, I would encourage that uh, they would know that intimacy with you, to know the confidence and peace and joy to have your sins forgiven, to know if today were your last, that you would be, that we would be in the presence of God that only comes through trust in your work and not ours. But Lord, we thank you for each one here. I pray that you would encourage, direct, and if there are those who maybe um, are interested in um, salvation, that they would uh, talk to someone or we have some uh, just paperwork in the back. We also, if maybe it's baptism, just fill out your card and would like to follow in believer's baptism or membership to become a part of this local church. I pray that you would be magnified, your spirit might direct. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Just transition a little. I'll just hold the mic. I know that some people, oh, don't worry. It's okay. I mean, it's just because I have it here, I'm going to use it. Just like sometimes, you know, Shauna will sing.